This is Startup Renegades, a raw conversation with founders, entrepreneurs, and the unicorns among us who have taken their idea and turned it into a thriving, profitable brand. I'm your host, Shauna Armitage, and my work as a fractional marketing director has led me to connect with dozens and dozens of founders in all stages of their startup journeys. Whether they're bootstrapping or fundraising or have capital on hand, there's one big question founders always ask, how do I grow this thing? On Startup Renegades, we'll explore how they did it, and you'll walk away with actionable steps you can take on your own journey to scalable growth. Today, you are going to meet Courtney Boyd Myers. She is the CEO and co-founder of Akua, a brand pioneering a new food category in the natural grocery world. Brooklyn-based Akua creates plant-based foods from locally sourced and regeneratively ocean-farmed kelp, one of the most sustainable and nutrient-dense food sources on the planet. Now listen, Courtney is going to walk us through this. It's really fascinating and it's super interesting. In 2021, they launched the world's first kelp burger. That's right, the world's first kelp burger, which is the most delicious, nutritious, and eco-friendly vegan burger on the market. Courtney is an entrepreneur, environmentalist, and writer. How she went from writer to CEO of her own company is an amazing journey, and she shares some specific marketing strategies, both for Kickstarter and for doing the market research that really led to the creation of this perfect market fit product for Akua. You're going to love it. Let's listen in. Hey there. Welcome to the show. Hey, Shauna. Thank you for having me. So excited to have you here. Let's start, as always, from the very beginning. What did you want to be when you grew up? (laughs) A mermaid or a marine biologist? That is an amazing, amazing answer. I also wanted to be a mermaid and thought that was like my life's ambition for quite a while. Didn't end up working out that way. What did you go to school for? Well, yeah, I've kind of veered off that path. I went to school for creative writing, English literature, philosophy, you know, just thought I'd stay in academia for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. And then realized that, you know, when I graduated, I actually needed to get a job. (laughs) That was going to be my question. That sounds great. What were you going to do with it to to make money? You know, like smoke weed, write poetry, hang out on the quad. But no, I moved to New York in 2008 and got a job in journalism working for Forbes magazine. Oh, wow. I say that date and time of Forbes is a financial magazine. And in 2008, the world started falling apart from a financial perspective, if you'll recall. So my beat quickly became tracking down like Bernie Madoff's money and like who he had screwed over. And then all of our advertisers pulled. And so we had like basically half the size of the company and I was laid off, which was looking back the most kind of important experience of my life because that was the last and only job I've ever had where I had a cubicle. (laughs) That is quite the journey. Might sound like a silly question, but like, how did that make you feel? You said that was like the first and only job where you had a cubicle. How did that kind of change your direction? You know, I think that what I realized getting laid off at like 25, I got dumped in the same week too. I went on unemployment, which was 2009. You know, everyone was on unemployment at the time. And I just ended up moving to Argentina. 
just like that. We're like, well, it's not working here. Let's go try South. Yeah, <laughs> it was like cold in New York City. I'd always had this, you know, kind of stirring in my soul to get down to Buenos Aires. And so I did it. And I bought a one-way ticket. I came back six months later to Brooklyn and just decided to really focus on creative writing. Mm-hmm. And I really like think that being pushed out of a big corporate cushy job where you had 401ks and, you know, kind of business expenses and all that, like gave me the freedom to know that like I could make money on my own freelancing, which is just huge and is something that always in the back of my mind feels like a safety net. You know, I can like jump and create things and know that like my landing's always soft. I can kind of fall back on writing or marketing or, you know, my core skill sets to earn a living. I feel that in my soul. I stayed in a job for a little while that I didn't like and I didn't want to be there, but I wasn't actively making like pushes to go out and do something else because it felt secure. You know, it felt like I was always getting that paycheck and not having that is scary. So having that realization that you've got this and you don't need corporate, I feel like is a game changer. Yeah, I think it's a reason a lot of people are scared to start their own businesses or strike out on their own. It's like that comfort of working for a corporate. And I get it. It's really cushy. And, you know, I think when you're on the track for a long time, it can be even harder to break out. But after that moment in time, you know, when I sort of graduated into the world collapsing, yeah, I always kind of knew how to make my own bread and butter, which was super key in developing my career, which is, you know, ever since then been in entrepreneurship. So you were doing creative writing, you were getting paid for it. When did you become a startup founder? Where was this like aha moment that you had a problem to solve? Yeah. So creative writing led me into really writing about entrepreneurs. I worked for a company called The Next Web, which is based out of Amsterdam, and they're very similar to TechCrunch. And I was just, you know, writing about these very early stage entrepreneurs, like the Warby Parker guys, the founders of Instagram, like really when they were just getting started. And so I started like paying attention to their founding stories and being around that energy. And I found it really contagious. And when I decided, you know, kind of before I turned 30 to move to London, I just thought, you know, I can do this. I can definitely strike out on my own as well. And I I started an agency. That was my first job or my first, you know, company and just started pulling in clients and pulling in cash and hiring people. And that was, you know, a little different than running a product business where you have, you know, very elaborate P&Ls, but definitely taught me, you know, I think how to sell myself, which is a super core skill. (laughs) Yeah. It totally is. But you ended up moving past this agency and starting another business. So tell me about how you came up with the idea for that. Yeah, of course. So we're here today to talk about Akua, which is uh, my sustainable food company. As I was turning the corner on 30, I started thinking really seriously about climate change and what my legacy would be in the context of that. I was working for a lot of like tech startups at the time, and I as my clients. And I remember thinking, well, what if my future granddaughter asks me one day, Grandma, what were you doing when the world was literally burning? This was sort of in the summer. I remember California was on fire yet again. And it now is this 
really regular occurrence. I just thought, you know, what am I going to tell her? I've been working for like dating app company and fintech startups. Like that's really cool, but it's not going to really focus on what I valued in that time of my life. So I think in parallel to all this, my personal you know, sort of background is my dad was a big food marketer and he worked on campaigns like Pepsi and Frito-Lay and Keebler Elves and, you know, was always Burger King Kids Club was one of his creations. And he always was, you know, eating these kind of high processed diets and living this high stress corporate life. And I really always wanted him to like go plant-based, like eat healthier. And so in sort of parallel to like understanding agriculture's role in climate change, I was also understanding big food's role in like destroying human health and just thought there's got to be a better way. And so that is how Akua started, you know, this mission to create food products that are just as healthy for you and me as they are for the planet too. That sounds amazing. I love the mission, but you make it sound so simple. You're like, it just started with this mission. <laughs> what did you have to do first? Were you, you know, digging into recipes? Were you finding facilities to make your products? What were kind of your first steps towards doing this? Yeah. So first step was I visited a kelp farm and it's always important to kind of line up what's a kelp farm because I think we're familiar with like kelp forests. Like you see these beautiful images of these gorgeous underwater rainforests with otters swimming around in Monterey, California. Well, over on the New England seaboard, what we're doing is we're working with fishermen who are going out there and they're putting out ropes and they're growing from spores, kelp plants that basically grow down instead of up from the bottom of the seabed. And these kelp plants are growing from around November is when they get planted. And then they're coming out of the water around April, May, and they're between seven, eight feet long. And they're just these beautiful kind of golden strands of mermaid hair. And the ecological impact of growing these kelp farms is so incredible, as well as economic. So Imagine if you're planting a rainforest under the sea, right? And you are looking at these kelp species as a photosynthetic species. So it's sucking in carbon and nitrogen from the water as it, you know, creates its body mass and exhales oxygen. So it has this really key deacidification effect in the oceans. Also, if you think about everything you and I have, you know, had to eat or drink today, kelp doesn't require fresh water or dry land to grow abundantly. Mm-hmm which is really cool from a climate change perspective. So is that why you were so drawn to it? Like, you know, there's different ways to do sustainable food. Was it always kelp for you? Or did you kind of like dig in, look at different solutions and then decide that this was the one that you wanted to focus on? Yeah, I was I was always looking at regenerative agriculture solutions at the mm-hmm. time, but I was so drawn to kelp farming for so many reasons. One, you know, I'm a huge ocean lover and kite surfer and would live on a boat if I could. And I wanted some way to like support ocean ecosystems. I'm also from New England. I grew up between Connecticut and Cape Cod. So this idea of working with fishermen, giving them another way to create income off of the boats and the buoys and the relationships with the towns that they already have, kind of moving from like ocean hunting to ocean gardening, if you will. Yeah. And I loved this community side of it. 
So we work really closely with our ocean farmers to grow kelp specifically right now. But Akua, our mission is to work with all sorts of sustainable seaweeds. So we're chatting down in Panama and Mexico, sort of looking at some red seaweeds down in I think it's the Baja area too. They're growing ulva and sea lettuce. So we're starting to look at all sorts of different kinds to incorporate into our products. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the first step, like you asked, was figuring out our supply chain. Right. How are we going to buy this kelp? How much money is it going to cost? How are we going to process it? How are we going to store it? And then from there, the next step was, was the recipe development on our early products. That sounds amazing. I'm also from New England, so I love it. The big question I think next is not exactly where do you go from there, but like you've got the products. Did you take out loans, start building this, start selling it, or did you go out and pitch it to VCs and get the company funded that way? Yeah. So because I came from this background in tech and startups, I did understand fundraising to a certain extent. You know, at least I knew what it looked like. I knew phrases like seed round and A round. And, you know, I'd looked at a bunch of decks before, you know, I'd invested in a few companies as well. And most importantly, I had so many friends who were founders. And I think that's really key is as you're starting out in entrepreneurship to like be friends with other founders because it's really hard. And my number one kind of like way that I get help in the world is just by chatting to other, especially female founders. So I went out there, we raised a convertible debt round, which is an instrument that makes it a little bit lower risk for investors. They get a big discount for investing in your first priced round. And then you don't need to set a valuation on your company necessarily. You do set a a valuation cap. So we raised a 500K convertible note round at like a $5 million cap. And this is when we were running around with really early samples of kelp jerky Mm -hmm. in Ziploc bags. And I'm like (laughs) running around New York City. And it felt like we'd done so much already. But looking back, I mean, we were just so early stage. You know, we had no idea what we were doing in, in comparison to what we know now. Hey, it's Shauna here. I want to take a quick break from this amazing episode to send a free resource your way. Starting up is hard. Whether you're bootstrapping or you've got some funding behind you, you don't always know exactly where to start. I want to fix that. You head to startuprenegades.com right now. You can claim your free business benchmark blueprint. That's a mouthful. It's going to help you set a plan in place so you can create your foundation for growth. And it's free, so why not? Head to startuprenegades.com right now and grab yours. So 500000 I feel like, sounds like a ton to people. But when you are starting up and you are expected to scale... It doesn't go very far. What were you focused on? Well, it's true, right? What were you focused on in those early days? Yeah, I think a big difference between that amount of money going far and not is unfortunately whether you pay yourself or not. Yeah. And so there's like a couple ways to do this. Like one is pay yourself with that money and focus 100% full time on the business. Yeah. I felt like we had a lot to figure out and we had time on our side. It wasn't like we were the type of business that was raising funding to go after like existing incumbents in the market. What we were creating was so new that I felt like it's going to take us a long time to figure out. So let's not pay ourselves. Let's keep our part-time jobs and let's work on this part-time as we build it. And so 
you know, I think you can go both ways on what's best for you. If I was starting a coconut water company and, you know, Zico and all those were already out there, I probably would have just paid myself and gone for it. So we decided not to pay ourselves. And that 500K lasted us from, I'd say, 2019 until, you know, about a year later, we realized that we needed to raise again. And Uh then there was the pandemic, which is a whole nother chapter in our story. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's really interesting. And I love that you shared that perspective because – Okay, so probably wrong to say that there's no wrong way to do it, but I feel like there's a lot of right ways to do it and different ways to attack it. And I don't think that I've talked to many founders who were doing it part-time and just growing that different way. So I think that's fascinating. I'm so glad that you shared that. So once you were starting up and you had the kelp jerky in the plastic bags, what were you doing to acquire your early customers? What did your marketing look like? Yeah. So previous to building Akua, one of my jobs was working on a community-based company called Summit. And I firmly believe that, you know, if you have the right community behind you, you can do anything. And so we really leaned into that and launched on Kickstarter. Mm. I'd also been like just a huge fan of Kickstarter from day one and had backed dozens of projects. And you know, it was kind of looking back, kind of the denouement of Kickstarter's like days, because I don't think a lot of people are raising money on it anymore. I don't, you know, I certainly don't see it as much as I did in like 2016. So we came out of the gate, put together this beautiful video. And I think it it was a really important way to understand whether like our mission resonated with people. Mm -hmm. And it really did. You know, we raised 80K on the platform, which is quite high for a food company on Kickstarter, got 1200 backers, We put together a timeline that was like crazy unrealistic looking back (laughs) on like, I was like, you're going to back us in March and like, we'll have your kelp jerky to you and like a finalized production bag, all those by July. And we actually didn't get our product to our Kickstarter backers. We did the Kickstarter in 2018 in March. We delivered in, I think it was like June or July, 2019. Oh, wow. No, it was April 2019, but still a year later, I made a joke. This is like the Avatar 2 of snacks. Like it's like well worth the wait, but like, you know, where the hell is Avatar 2, right? (laughs) Thankfully, we came out before the movie. And so we leaned into that early like thousand person customer list as like our, our really sort of core market when we were coming in there. And then we really leaned heavily into PR because our story is so cool around the kelp. Yeah. And yeah, you know, I think it was just a lot of asking for favors from friends to post about us and, and, you know, strategies like that. We didn't really start Facebook advertising right away. You know, we didn't really have the budget to. We weren't doing influencer marketing or anything like that. Now we're doing everything. But um, yeah, it was really grassroots. You build up to that. You know, you have to nail down a few grassroots strategies before you, you move into that for sure. I have a question about Kickstarter. I know that it can be really a powerful platform, but it's always been my understanding that you do better if you bring an audience to it. You have to mm-hmm. kind of market the Kickstarter, but you had, you said like 1,200 supporters. So how did you do that? Were you rallying a community that you already had? Yeah. So 50% of the people that backed us on Kickstarter were people I knew mm-hmm. and 50% were from the Kickstarter platform. There's a lot of different ways to game Kickstarter. I wrote an article about it, like when the world kelped out and had all my tips in it. 
The one tip that's not in it, because it's like a little black hat, was I had a lot of people that were confirmed to invest in that 24-hour period because it's so important to get the funding up as much as possible during those first 24 hours because then Kickstarter's algorithms put you out everywhere. And then, you know, your friends, as the more money comes in, can like peel back their donations. (laughs) So you can kind of like change your final donation until the very end. We were gaming it a little bit that way. You know, we were basically putting out these like daily newsletters to like everybody in sort of these like concentric circles of my network. Mm -hmm. But again, it all comes back to like having that huge network, which I had from journalism and hosting events and et cetera. So it definitely helped. That's great to hear. I feel like people need to understand what strategies are available to them because it sounds really great going to one of these platforms trying to get funding. But like you said, unless you're able to really kickstart the algorithms, it's not easy to to raise that way. It's a lot of work. You have to bring your network. You have to do marketing for the campaign. So just kind of hearing how you, the best way that you can possibly go about it is really helpful. Were there any other strategies beyond Kickstarter that you felt were really effective? You mentioned PR. Did you do the PR yourself? Yeah, we did. I did the PR myself. We did some strong Instagram, you know, social media marketing. We did events, a lot of events, bringing people together to try the product. Mm -hmm. It was doing okay. This was April 2019 that we launched. We launched on Earth Day. So coming up, I guess, on our three-year anniversary of the kelp jerky. Mm -hmm. But then what started to happen is that, like, people didn't love the kelp jerky. It was, like, way too healthy. It was, like, you know, something that did really well in, like, Erewhon and Pac Northwest and, like, you know, some, like, real hippie stores. But it didn't have that, like, mainstream appeal. So we were kind of, like, running out of money. And this is the beginning of 2020. We had a product that was pretty mediocre, honestly. And so we were driving to Expo West in California, and thankfully it got canceled because of COVID. And I say thankfully because, you know, we were just about to spend so much money promoting this product that like really wasn't right for the market. You know, I think we made two mistakes. One was there was just way too much kelp in the kelp jerky. It's like almost 70% kelp, which is a lot to introduce to a primarily, you know, North American mainstream audience that didn't grow up eating seaweed. And then two, if you look at like all the jerky snacks that are out there today, they're really full of a lot of sugar. And we went like almost full-blown like vegan keto on this. (laughs) And it was just like too healthy. So we went back to the drawing board after Expo got canceled and started working on the kelp burger and really decided to just because we couldn't host events during that time, we would send samples out to like hundreds of our customers and do product development in this like really large crowdsourced way. Again, like leaning into that idea of community. So in 2020, over a six month period, we shipped a thousand customers kelp burgers and created the Kelp Burger Beta Club, oh, fun. which was super fun. And yeah, that is how we found product market fit for kelp. It was it's the form of our burger, which now everybody loves and feels totally different to be running a business where you have found that product market fit. That's amazing. So it's not amazing that, you know, the first product didn't go over the way that you wanted it to. But I think one of the biggest strengths with any founder is being able to pivot, just saying, okay, yeah. you know, 
I thought this was going to work, but it's not. And I have to switch focus and just understanding that that's not what the customer needs or you can't find the customer that you want in mass. So I love that story and I love what you're doing now. So what's next? Yeah, so we put out the Kelp Burger in May 2021, so coming up on a year of Kelp Burgers. This summer, we're going to be releasing two new products. One is a teriyaki burger. This is going to have like a meatier texture. The idea is to really go after that like kind of guy who wants like a charcoal grill taste. So it's going to be like a charcoal grill teriyaki. And then similar to how we did product development at the Kelp Burger, we just uh, released 800 plant-based crab cakes uh, to our customers for free. And then they're trying those and we're getting feedback and we'll keep iterating. So this summer we're going to sell our crab cakes in direct-to-consumer on our website and in restaurants. And we're going to launch the teriyaki burger into retail. Wow. You are having a busy, busy year already. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really exciting. I think like, you know, we're able to do product development very fast in the sense of like, you know, I think if you look at like old school, big food companies, like, you know, maybe we're releasing a product every two years and, you know, we can release a product every year. So we just have a really, you know, like lean model where Mm -hmm. we do product development with our customers and get it out like a beta product on our website. And and then, you know, eventually after it's proven, push it into retail. So having that kind of omni-channel business is, is super key to that sort of rapid development. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I love it. So Courtney, tell me, what does being a startup renegade mean to you? <laughs> I always identified with this word hustle from like an early age. I remember when Instagram first launched, my Instagram was hustle and kale. And it was just like all about working really, really hard and how to support working really, really hard with like a healthy lifestyle. And so, you know, for me, I think it's ever more true as I get older too, you know, like I am all about striking a balance, making sure I do yoga every single day, making sure I'm eating healthy in order to work as hard as I do. And yeah, so I think start when I hear startup renegade, I, I really think about hustle and kale <laughs> and that balance on supporting your sort of tireless CEO self with the right healthy habits and balance. I love it. Thank you so much for being here. Where can everybody find you online? Sure. So Akua is A-K-U-A dot C-O and our Instagram is at Life Akua. I'm at CVM on Instagram. That's probably the platform I'm the most active on because I'm 37 and I don't use TikTok, (laughs) but I really want to. We're getting on TikTok as well for Akua and it's the same handle. So you can find us on any of those platforms. I can't wait. That is going to be a good one for sure. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Shauna. That was this week's episode of Startup Renegades. Thank you so much for joining me and soaking up all that brilliant entrepreneurial knowledge from today's guest. If you want to suggest a founder for a future episode or just want to connect, you can find me on Instagram at shauna.armitage. That's S-H-A-U-N-A dot A-R-M-I-T-A-G-E. And just a little reminder, if you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. It makes a huge difference and it's so important for helping the show thrive. I'll be here same time next Tuesday for a raw, honest conversation with another startup renegade. Startup Renegade.